0: Hello and welcome to We've Got History Between Us. Episode 9 is split into seven sections, all of which are designed to make sense if you listen out of order or pick and choose topics you want to hear about. But we do recommend starting at the beginning to fully understand what the internship project was all about. For this episode, I got to know Samantha better. We discuss her passions, studies and upcoming dissertation. In the second half of this episode, we chat self-education and understanding complex narrative. What did it mean to Samantha to research, to understand, and to delve deeper? But similar to introducing Lorraine in part one of this series, we start simply. I asked her where she grew up.
1: I grew up in Fife in Scotland, so literally just across the water. And basically, I've been interested in history since, well, practically for as long as I can remember. Absolute classic, cliche, horrible histories fan, obsessed. Yeah. Um and basically have never grown up since that. (laughs) I just, I can't imagine doing anything else, really. Um, My interest has always been in kind of how... um, kind of regimes and power authorities kind of manifest themselves and, and really uh, the built environment as well. So I've always kind of had this awkward balance at school when I wanted to apply for history, but I was equally interested in buildings. Uh, I was trying to find the degree for me. And when I was literally filling out my UCAS paper, and the last course that i applied for which literally just came up on suggested for you on university of edinburgh website was architectural history i just thought right okay this has to be for me um so really kind of my upbringing in Fife, as well as like my family is quite art space. So my grandfather was an architect. Um, we all kind of, my uncle works for Historic Scotland. Um, I've had this kind of conservation and history background. So I've had some experiences with places like, you know, Stirling Castle, Edinburgh Castle, but others may not have had. So I've been very lucky in that regard.
0: Nice, keeping the family tradition going. I think that Horrible Histories and probably Blackadder as well are my main basis for how Any understanding of history that I have nowadays.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Blackadder obsessed as well. I mean, you can't go wrong with Blackadder. I've (laughs) been just honestly. I think my friends are sick of me talking about Blackadder. I try and indoctrinate anybody uh, with (laughs) Blackadder and horrible histories content. It there's a lot to be said if it makes you laugh, then
0: you'll probably remember it better.
1: Absolutely. absolutely.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you chose Architectural History at Edinburgh. Was that the sort of like straight out of school kind of thing or did you take a gap year or anything like that?
1: It was straight out of school, yeah. I think I had, I'm quite unusual. I kind of wanted, I knew what I wanted to do quite early on. I always kind of was interested in curatorship and terms of um, collections and then when I kind of got into undergrad, and I think the lovely thing about the architectural history course is you cover everything. We've covered everything from ancient Egypt all the way to the present day over a number of geographies um, and time periods that I think that kind of switched a wee bit to more academia research and understanding how primary collections kind of influence that research. That was really the selling point for me where some of the other courses I was applying for were kind of like modern history focused or medieval history focused. I thought I just want to kind of have a, a clear slate kind of from school I had studied I think the wars of independence about three times and the Jacobites about the same. <laughs> so I like I just want to see what else is out there and what else I can delve into. Mm. Um, so that was definitely my real focus was just trying to broaden my horizons a bit in terms of knowledge. Nice. Oh, it's nice to hear
0: that you had, you know, like um, an idea of what you wanted to do and something sorted, because I feel like for many people, it maybe takes a few years or or by the end of their degree, they suddenly find their thing. Type Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's quite difficult as well. I mean, I remember at school when I mentioned curatorship to teachers, they didn't really know what to advise in terms mm-hmm. of what kind of courses you should be taking. It was very kind of independent research on my own back of what you should be getting your your qualifications and where you need to be going, what experience you need. So I think in terms of like collections management, it can be quite difficult going from a school envisaging that trajectory early on. It does require quite a bit of research and kind of contact with the universities beforehand. But I think definitely, I mean, I would recommend anybody that's kind of going in that trajectory start out with something very general. Um, and architectural history is a really, really good way of doing that because of the scope you cover before specialising nice yeah yeah
0: yeah and the the thing is in your early years of undergrad and things like that you still get all these opportunities to go to different departments to do different courses it's not like you by picking something very specific that you aren't kind of keeping keeping eggs in the basket
1: yes i mean i did um classics modules and history of art modules so i was again i never did like the romans at school so i really wanted to do roman history and again, now completely Rome obsessed. So that was definitely an excellent decision on my behalf. And what else? History of art was really good. I think just examining like visual culture, it really contributes really nicely and sits well with architectural history. So it's, it's kind of a no brainer, definitely, if you're doing architectural history to kind of go down that route. Um, And I think I've I've done things like Roman art and archaeology. I've looked at early modern history. I've done a really wide range of kind of, Kind of similar themes in terms of visual culture but they all kind of go off in slightly different niche areas which say architecture history may not necessarily touch on but they all kind of benefit each other so it's um it's a really good course for branching out nice what year are you in by the way i'm in fourth year now nice yeah nice. so dissertation galore
0: <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask is there maybe like a, a university history based project that you'd like to talk about a, a little bit or anything like that I don't know if you want to uh, give a little spiel about whatever you've decided for your dissertation.
1: station. Yeah so I am doing what well, basically a study of a German neoclassical architect called Karl Friedrich Schinkel who I think is pretty cool. <laughs> he is quite unusual in the sense that he has been there's basically been many variations of Schinkel, he has been appropriated by many different regimes since the kind of 1800s. So he was kind of working around about the 1820s. The Nazis appropriated his work. The uh, socialists, the kind of when we had the Berlin split, the government, the socialist government uh, took over his work as well. The current GDR government are also now using his work to kind of create a kind of a coherent urban centre. Following the kind of destruction from the Second World War and the kind of financial recession, I went to Berlin for the first time in 2019, and it's such a—it's a, compared to other European cities, it's still in many ways trying to figure itself out. There's still a lot of work that's needing to be done. It's still kind of dealing with the ramifications of, sound, of the destruction of the Second World War and the Berlin Wall. So, really, what my dissertation is looking at is the the role of national memory—is how Schinkel is being used to help modernize the city, and how his buildings are kind of the central axis for uh, further development. So it's kind of a bit of a cultural analysis in terms of historiography. So I'm having to go back and look at uh, Hitler's main architect, Albert Speer, who was a big fan of Schinkel and kind of appropriated some of his kind of main features. So for instance, Schinkel created these victory monuments for the Napoleonic Wars and topped them with an iron cross. And that was actually the medals used for the Prussian army. But the Nazis then took that symbol and then used it for their medals and used it for some of their monuments. So that's kind of one of the examples that you're kind of having to deal with when looking at historiography. Um, So it's kind of looking at these kind of negative and now positive appropriations, of his work. So there's things now, um, I think it was only a couple of a few months ago, uh, Berlin opened up their Museum Island u bahn station. It's based off of Schinkel's stage set, which is kind of, it's covered in a blue kind of starry night sky. And the u uh, bahn station ceiling is lit with little LED lights painted blue to kind of replicate that. And that's right underneath his main public museum, the Arts Museum. So that's basically, yeah, really what I'm exploring, kind of positive kind of new developments that are happening in the city and how Schinkel, the 21st century uh, resurgence of Schinkel is really important to not only the globalising effect that Berlin is starting to have in terms of one of the biggest European economies, but also its kind of importance in gaining some kind of its own identity back having dealt with so much urban trauma following the Second World War. And this kind of analysis kind of feeds into some of the imperialist and colonial stuff that we've been looking into in the internship as well, Uh, kind of looking at how land that has been exploited or buildings that have been exploited have kind of been reappropriated or ultimately how do you build upon land that may have negative connotations. So, for instance, in Berlin, they're planning to do a, a constructive a reunification monument in 2026. That monument is going on the site of a stat- of a previous statue to Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, who obviously was um, important in terms of World War uh, One. So As there's been lots of kind of negative comment, like media coverage, in terms of is this appropriate? Is this acceptable? this happens with practically every single building that goes up any kind of development in Berlin but this is kind of how all this interrelates kind of my interest in imperialism and colonialism with my Germanic neoclassical interests.
0: Fascinating that sounds so interesting yeah and like you say so many kind of links to the themes that were being brought up or the conversations that the CRC is trying to start to have. I had the most Amazing nine days in Berlin. I had planned very heavily to just walk around as much of the city as possible and see everything. Yeah, and it, you know,
1: it's so rich in what you can go and see. And I think the the unique thing about Berlin is you make it what you want it to be in terms of your trip. And I think that's really kind of what I'm arguing in my dissertation is that there's not a set urban experience, say if you go to Rome, for instance, you could follow the old pilgrimage trail to Vatican City, which is very set from Piazza del Popolo, follow the obelisks, you reach the Vatican, and you're kind of directed and oriented, where Berlin still has that, but it works to the extent that they're having to cater to a much greater audience in terms of some of their memorials. For instance, Berlin's had an issue with the Schinkel had a has a structure called the New Guard House. It's now known as the National Monument. When that was first rehabilitated in many ways and restored to be leading national monument, it was going to be the sole monument in the city. And there was a lot of criticism by American powers, British powers, as well as I think NATO had stipulated some guidance for them in terms of Germany and how it rehabil- rehabilitates itself that you can't commemorate the German losses with also allied losses, the Holocaust losses. How do you ensure that that is encompassed in one monument? And really, now the fact you've got the Holocaust Memorial, we've got the Reunification Memorial coming up, I think there's a real understanding that ultimately your audience is much greater, is that you can go to Berlin, you can go and see all three memorials and feel that you've seen what you need to see. But equally if you were an individual who was directly targeted by the say under the Nazi regime, you can go purely to the Holocaust memorial, you could purely go to the national monument. So I think that's really how clever German urban design has been in the past kind of 20 years is it's really been thought through how people receive and respond uh, to their city and their capital.
0: You seem very prepared, especially I, for semester one.
1: <laughs> I'm very well, I think there's there's honestly so so much material. I'm having to like read there's a lot of kind of bias material because you have the Nazi propaganda and then you have like different interpretations. There's literally different variations between East Berlin, West Berlin. So it's going through all this primary to material just to make sure everything's kind of in place. So it's such an interesting place that I absolutely love it so I'm enjoy- I'm actually enjoying it uh, how I will be feeling next semester when I need to write this up will be interesting but at the <laughs> moment it's, it's really interesting I'm thoroughly enjoying it.
0: Well I mean I think there's a lot to be said for when it's so interesting and it's it's based deep in your interests I think you'll probably be okay. I really loved my dissertation and enjoyed the topic that I was doing and watched friends get angrier and angrier about whatever they had picked. I think by the end of it and hand in, I was was still enjoying it and I was thinking, is something wrong? Should I I be worrying by this point? But yeah, hopefully the same will be the case.
1: Definitely. I think um, I'm quite lucky because I'm wanting to kind of continue, hopefully, into a master's qualification with some research surrounding shinkle again and kind of new classical architects and comparison with um Edinburgh and Mm. London so Edinburgh is often compared with London and Paris quite a bit and I think there's actually some connections that can be made with Berlin so uh, I'm in this for the long run so I'm I've been thoroughly enjoying it so far though so I hopefully this will be maintained fingers crossed.
0: I mean you sort of were talking about curatorship before I was wondering before the internship had had you been interested in the heritage sector and in collections and archives?
1: Yes, yeah, so I have had a couple of experiences with the heritage sector. So I used to volunteer for National Trust for Scotland while I was at school. And that was just basically being a volunteer guide around Falkland Palace in Fife, um, which is a great property, by the way, if you've got free time go. It's a kind of like a French chateau-esque uh, holiday, royal holiday home, basically. It was the the Balmoral of its day. Mary Queen of Scots fans it's the place to go exception to Holyrood and that was kind of my first experience with the heritage sector in terms of understanding how the charities work and particularly a charity is really interesting because you have sort of greater business pressures so you have to cater to greater tourist markets. Uh, One of the things that I had to do was deal with like holiday packages so because Falkland's fairly close to St Andrews um, we had a lot of kind of golf Holiday packages that would be, Falkland would be part of that. So it'd be basically ensuring that we could expand the commercial market of the charity. But also, it was just basically sharing knowledge as with as many people as possible and ensuring that your material was accessible and I think that balance was really good going from uni and having the heritage sector because I think sometimes you really want your academic material to be as accessible as possible to a number of different age ranges and I think the stuff that we've been doing in the internship as well that's of critical importance. In terms of some of the other things I did, I also did a work experience with Historic Environment Scotland. It was a week looking at kind of the conservation work they do. So at one point, I was stuck on the chimneys at Stirling Castle, um, looking at what the kind of <laughs> the restoration work they were doing there. Uh, for the record, they were very wobbly and I am awful with heights. So that was an interesting afternoon. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. Though. It was really, really good. And it was kind of looking at kind of traditional methods of restoration and kind of the, the traditional materials they use. Um, I also did Edinburgh Castle and we looked at kind of uh, some of the areas that the public didn't get access to in terms of how you exhibit spaces and ensure, particularly with the, the Crown Court. Um, and where the house obviously the crown jewels, the it's quite um, awkward network of spaces, funnily enough, because it's the old, one of the older bits of the castle, it's kind of a, it's quite narrow and quite difficult to navigate. So how do you ensure an effective exhibition of collections, paintings and board material and context? I got involved with some kind of laser scanning, understanding some of the Leica um, material that they get in the 3D printing, also looking at kind of projects of Scottish 10 where they sent a number of conservationists over to areas including Sydney, to scan things like the Sydney Opera House and basically being able to understand the level of deterioration in some of these buildings, but also ensuring the preservation, having a digital record. So this is this kind of technology is particularly beneficial in places like, um, and unfortunately, places like Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, where you have, say, religious iconography or religious structures which are being destroyed being able to take a digital record of these that ultimately can be kept for posterity for future study or possibly even future reconstruction that's kind of part of the discussion um, as well in terms of colonialization and imperialism which could be used as well in terms of what else uh, but yeah that was kind of my main interaction with kind of the heritage sector was just kind of looking at the notion of conservation heritage and basically being able to further gain the funding to ensure that 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 work can be done which Mm -hmm. kind of working for for a government body as well as a a charity was particularly interesting to see that contrast
0: Mm, yeah exciting had you come into contact with the crc before as well even just maybe as a student
1: yeah i think in my junior honors years we went to see i think it was william playfair's drawings so I did a course called architectural Her- history and heritage and practice, which is basically architectural conservation. So looking at listed buildings, how you preserve them, filling in kind of planning applications. So currently I've got a volunteering position with the Architectural Heritage Society for Scotland, and that's working with the Forth and Borders cases panel. So what we do is we get applications we, for listed buildings and we comment whether the proposals are acceptable. So that kind of work worked into kind of the CRC because we looked at some of these listed buildings and we're trying to develop like statement of significance. So to say why it should be listed, why it's important. So that could be notable architect, it could be notable architectural features. So some of the stuff in the CRC we went to see included, as I say, William Flaefier's drawing. So we did kind of statement of significance surrounding that. I also did a statement of significance for Adam House, so I came into CRC a couple of occasions to look at some of the senatus uh, documentation in terms of the minutes because uh, that building was quite tied into the kind of aesthetics of old college despite being a fairly modern building. So that that's kind of where my research initially happened in Juniors honors. And then in kind of my honors years, um, I've just been taking a course called Landscapes of Empire, which has been kind of looking kind of imperial context of architectural appropriation, exploitation. Um, One of the things we did is we looked at resources, look at Sierra Leone mines. So looking at the press, British press coverage, saying that, you know, these individuals were rebels going into the mines, taking resources, where ultimately the actual reality of government papers say something quite different. So it was kind of showing the imbalance of factual accuracy in two different sources. And one of the other notable sources we looked at was enslaved persons record in uh, Grenada in I think it was about seventeen was it 1718? I think from the top off the top of my head. And that was kind of looking it was basically a a, a register of uh, different individuals of different enslaved persons on this plantation, looking at, um, amongst other things, age, height, uh, health, and also value, sadly, as well. It's a really important document. It's actually really unique. I'd actually recommend anyone to go and see it because it's a really, really interesting document. So that's kind of my experience with CRC uh, prior to the internship. And then kind of whilst I was doing the internship as well was kind of looking at these through the context of my courses. Uh, cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you
0: have, I mean, do you have words or opinions kind of on the current discourse on the conversations
1: being had? I think my opinion is this needs to, this discourse needs to happen. There are mm-hmm. there are narratives in terms of the British Empire in particular, which are still very much designed to subordinate the views of ex-colonies. I personally think there are individuals, and I think it's reflective in the colonialism review, that need to be re-evaluated in terms of their reputation in terms of in the history books are squeaky clean. William Pitt statue is one, and it's one we know has taken a bit of criticism, The Telegraph has written two articles about this already basically on the basis that the narrative is he was the Prime Minister, youngest Prime Minister, that also led the abolitionist movement. But we also know his ministry for war it was a certain Mr Henry Dundas. And he s- asked Dundas to send a military enforcement to uh, basically a, an ins- a slave revolt. It was about, th- about 300,000 or something like that. So... That is something that kind of needs to be brought to light in terms of that the notion of abolition does not mean you are a squeaky clean character. We've seen this with Thomas Jefferson, for instance, that abolition was kind of used as an excuse for, but kind of a beneficial justification for racial cleansing to stop the international market of enslaved persons coming into America. He could then replace that market with white Europeans. So the, sl- the kind of free enslaved populations were then sent to the Caribbean because Jefferson felt pressure from European authorities to a, kind of create a very pure, inverted commas was his words, nation. And, and that was kind of based off of kind of French philosophy as well. So questioning these kind of terms of abolition doesn't necessarily mean You've got good intent. It could be to get yourself into power in the next election. It could be all those things. I think kind of my advice in terms of dealing with the kind of current conversations is definitely read as much as you can. I know reading is kind of in terms of time and what people have to do. It can be difficult, but just take what you're reading with a pinch of salt. I think a couple of the articles that have been criticising the work of Edinburgh Council have not been entirely accurate. have kind of been designed to definitely create some kind of antagonism. But I do think something needs to be done. I think education's key in terms of not only accessing at university level, but at school level as well. There are narratives that I think are slightly outdated or need further scope. For instance, in the Scottish education system, you have a module on Scottish impact abroad, particularly in places like Canada, Australia and New Zealand um and it kind of looks at much more of the positives kind of i think introduction at presbyterian church you've got things like i think at one point we looked at in australia that the scots invented a scot invented speedos you know that was one thing but the negatives are kind of minimal compared to the the much greater positives so that balance kind of needs to be addressed but i think in terms of an architectural history perspective we need to kind of be developing an approach of how we deal with monuments associated with slavery and colonialism is it do we take them down can we recontextualize them but not just thinking of these structures as individual entities you have to think about axes and you have to think about spatiality that these monuments speak to everything else what are the consequences of removing something on the greater urban environment but equally Does it have any ramifications as well? So, I mean, that's something we've been talking in my Landscapes of Empire class about Melville monuments, you know, in uh, St Andrew's Square, which has obviously been very topical at the moment. How on earth we deal with that? I don't even have an opinion on that as of yet. That's what I'm kind of reading into at the moment, because I think it's one of those issues that it's not only about linking Edinburgh's built environment, those kind of columns were also designed to link United Kingdom cities as well. So I, I think it's necessary, I think it needs to happen it, need, it requires a lot of reading, it requires a lot of research. Uh, I encourage any anybody to pick up any book. There's loads on Amazon. There's like Empire Land, there's Native, there's things like that. Just pick up something and read it because you will have a completely different perspective. And I think just also have... The guts to challenge these narratives as well. It can be quite intimidating to do so, particularly the backlash I think that's been happening down south with National Trust for England and I think some of the kind of, I think war on wokeism I think has been described by some members of parliament. I think we are are doing the right thing, we need to be doing this, it's necessary, but just have the confidence to engage with these conversations. It's about self-education more than anything else
0: yeah yeah totally and ties so nicely into what you were saying before about the as the narrative gets uh, bigger and more complicated there's a hope or a gut feeling that, that it's becoming a lot more accurate and there's whatever has been left off on the peripheries previously is maybe getting a bit more inclusion now but the, in terms of confidence for people talking about these things and be able to bring the um these sorts of topics up is a major thing. You saying, you know, that you've spent sort of or you feel like you've spent over a year of self education in these things. For many people I think there is a fear right now that, you know, to engage in in this and say the wrong thing.
1: Absolutely. I mean the, the atmosphere around this topic it, it is it is toxic. It's really it's quite a um a scary thing to get yourself involved into. And I think the main thing that i can say is i don't know i am no way an expert i am still learning a lot that the module i've done this semester um has been looking at kind of empire across the board so i've been looking at dutch french british i've been looking at british india i've been looking at jamaica all over so i know bits and pieces of different areas but really my main advice is it is it is purely research it is reading it is just trying to understand as many perspectives as possible. And I think the thing is, we're not trying to get rid of any history. We're not trying to rewrite history in many ways. We're just trying to make it more accurate. We're just trying to bring in as many different perspectives as we possibly can. That is lived experience, that is imperial experiences, that is subjugated in in experiences as well. But I think, Yeah, the main way is to try and engage within these kind of research, being able to actually ask those difficult questions as well to maybe those who have had some kind of lived experience. I mean, that has been one thing. I mean, having the pleasure of working with Sir Jeff Palmer, his perspective on certain research has been particularly beneficial and kind of looking at things in a slightly different light. Some of the readings I've done in my coursework as well, looking at those who had their parents lived in British India, or have kind of these group of this kind of experience of prejudice is particularly beneficial being able to see from that perspective. So the, the main thing is, is ask those questions because if you ask those questions, you're going to, you, that will break down a, a barrier in itself, but it is, mu- is encouraging self-education, I think is the main thing. And that not only has to be an independent effort, but I think that is something that has to be seen at a governmental level in terms of educational legislation, both historically, but I think in kind of subjects like modern studies, which looks at uh, law international relations. And I think even in things like climate change, when we're talking about um, kind of climate legislation, particularly after COP26, when we're having conversations about, say, plant- planting large swathes of rainforest or trees uh, to, prevent- to stop deforestation, I think was one of the conversations they were having. My automatic response to that is, well, what land are you planting on? Who's, who owns that land? Who's there? Are we displacing anyone? Is this neo-colonialism in many ways? Are we doing, you know, it has ramifications for everything and being able to understand how far this seeps into political, social, climate concerns impacts all of us. And that's why I think we need to be looking into this further.
0: Oh, it's also interesting. We could talk about this for forever. <laughs> <I> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think it's nice as well. There must be so many students out there at, at Edinburgh University beyond who are want wanting to have these conversations, wanting to be part of it, or wanting to start and don't know where to. And so it's it's just excellent. I think it's it's very good that, that these internships have come along and started something there regarding all of this.
1: Absolutely. I think it's a great experience in terms of being able to engage with the material hands-on and i think being able to see both say colonial narratives and also hidden narratives side by side is quite a unique experience you don't always see that mm-hmm. um, But yeah, I think they're definitely, I mean, I'm very, very lucky the architectural history department is quite forward, has been quite progressive, quite forward thinking in terms of looking at colonial narratives. We've been looking at trying to bring more female narratives as well. I think we've been definitely most successful in kind of bringing in the colonial element, particularly, I think, It has to be done because of Edinburgh's connections. The new town developments, third new town developments are fundamentally linked and funded on these principles. So we we are very lucky, but I know other departments are not as fortunate. So I would really encourage just anybody to try and get into these internships and it's great experience. I mean, you get, and the archive team are lovely. So it's great fun. And it's actually, it's actually really nice just actually being able to have a look through the archives and seeing what actually the university has. It's great to see kind of what what, uh, the university likes to put out there and exhibit as well. The exhibitions are great as well. So it's definitely worthwhile.
0: This was the third in a seven part series discussing an internship project from 2021 at the CRC. The themes and conversation brought up here will return in later parts of episode 9. Next time is similar. We're going to get to know Ashlyn Cudney and see how her studies, into gender and control, take these topics in a different direction. You've been listening to We've Got History. These episodes were recorded in December 2021 and March 2022. This was part of episode 9. The guests were Lorraine McLaughlin, Ashlyn Cudney and Samantha Carey. Episode hosted and edited by Lily Mellon.